Okay, tonight we're going to discuss Chief Rabbi Joseph Herman Hertz of the British Empire. Now before I begin, just by a show of hands, how many of you still use the Hertz Commission on a somewhat regular basis? So almost nobody. Almost nobody. I'll raise my hand. All right. Okay. Joseph Hertz was born in Slovakia in 1872 to a father who is a, a plum farmer and a Hebrew poet. The family lived in the Austro-Hungarian Empire till Hertz was about 12 years old, moves in 1884 to New York City, and attends City College, graduates 1891, and gets a PhD from Columbia in 1894. He goes to the Jewish Theological Seminary, where he is the Talmud Muvak, the uh, most devoted disciple of Sabato Moraes, who was the head of the seminary at that time, was the Chazan of Mikveh Israel Synagogue of Philadelphia, one of, the leaders, one of the leaders of traditional Jewry in the United States at that time. Hertz is the first graduate of the Jewish Theological Seminary in 1894, the same year he graduates from Columbia. And when he is ordained, he is ordained by the seminary but also, and very importantly, get smicha from multiple rabbis. Now, when I say he was ordained by the seminary, doesn't that mean he got smicha? The answer is absolutely not. It doesn't mean that at all. That this, the Jewish Theological Seminary, as was the case with other theological seminaries the world over, including Europe, when you, were, when you graduated from that institution, you got some certificate that gave you a title of some kind or authorization to do some kind of Jewish communal work, but it was not necessarily Hatarat Hora'ah, the classic smicha of the last 400 years. And so people who were deserving of it would pursue it from private individuals, private prestigious rabbis. Hertz got it from multiple rabbis. But as for the institution itself, it was just a certificate that you graduated the, the regular course. This would be very important in England as well, later in his career, because Jews' college produces ministers for Orthodox synagogues, but they are a reverend, they are a minister. They are not a rabbi, and they don't have smicha unless they pursue it independently. This smicha is documented? The rabbis would give them documents? Yes. You could show it, you know, you could show Rabbi so-and-so's name is on your piece of paper. And at that time, JTS was a traditional... JTS was founded in 1886 at Sherith Israel Synagogue as a reaction to the Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh platform of the reform and as a hostile counterweight to the Hebrew Union College of Cincinnati. And it was a conglomerate of what we would call orthodox and uh, fairly traditional but heterodox uh, figures who worked together in relative harmony uh, for about a decade and a half before the institution collapsed under its own weight and then had to be resurrected by Jacob Schiff and the reform money people who installed Solomon Schechter, and then it moved in a different direction. Okay. Was there a concept of um, structure of Yori or Yoden Yoden by these? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, where does Hertz go once he is uh, released as a rabbi unto the world? Well, he goes to Syracuse. He needs to find the pulpit... <coughs> where they are looking for someone who wants to abide by the halakha, but also will give an eloquent English language sermon, 
And it's not easy to find a congregation for a rabbi of that sort. There are the shtibels of the Eastern European immigrants who have been arriving in significant numbers since the early 1880s, and you have the vast bulk of the synagogues that were built in the early part of the 19th century that are all now all reform, or almost all reform. So he goes to Syracuse, and he's there from 1894 to 1898, and he has to leave, as would happen to many rabbis of his type, where the synagogue moves in a progressive direction with which he was personally uncomfortable, and he drew a red line. If you cross this line, I'm out of here. And what was that red line? Almost always it was Mechitza, and in this case it was. The synagogue voted to have mixed seating, and he would not go for it. He attended his resignation and was looking for a new job. Where is that new job going to be? The bottom of the world. South Africa. Okay? From his perspective, it was the bottom of the world. <laughs> he goes to Johannesburg, to Whitwater's Rand Old Hebrew Congregation. How, how, do you, how, how does a guy who's in Syracuse, New York, connect with Johannesburg? 1898 isn't 898. It's already 1898. There, there are methods of communication, and, and positions are, are advertised in English-language Jewish periodicals uh, because a congregation knows that it isn't going to find someone locally uh, for a South African congregation to find a suitable minister, they have to either going to turn either to, to London or to the Americas. And so the fact that in the New York area someone found out about such a position is not at all a surprise. Now, he got the job, and he goes to Johannesburg. Johannesburg is not under British rule. Johannesburg is in the Transvaal. It's the, the section of, of, of uh, South Africa that is independent of the British, the Orange Free State, the South African Republic. And the Cape areas of the country are under the British. So the Boers, led by President Paul Kruger, want to maintain their independence and don't want to be subsumed under the British. And there's a major war in 1899 to 1902. And Hertz is clearly pro-British. He gets himself into big trouble with President Kruger because he demands complete and full emancipation for the Jewish residents of the country, which they did not have. There were religious uh, tests for holding of office. There were, li- there were disability, legal disabilities to being a Jew. Uh, he didn't want to hear that. As an American passport holder, as an American citizen, he believed... Huh? What does that mean? What? Uh, there were... Uh, there were uh, offices you could not hold if you were if you did not profess the right religion. If you were not Protestant, you could not run for office. You could not vote. I mean, there, certain professions might have been limited. So these were official or these official rules. Yeah, you know, official rules. Yeah, yeah, in writing, sure. So he is clearly pro-British, which will serve him in good stead when he applies for the big job fifteen years later. He also meets Winston Churchill in his time in South Africa. At the time, Churchill is a young officer. Hertz is three years older than Churchill. He also meets uh, future Queen Mary um, when she was still yet a princess. So he, he doesn't waste his time in South Africa. He's trying to build up his reputation and consolidate the South African Jewish community. But it proves impossible to do because of a battle of egos of the three main rabbis, the two rabbis in Johannesburg and the one rabbi in Cape Town. And so it ends up being absolutely impossible uh, to have a so-called united synagogue of South Africa. Um, 
he's lonely. He's a single guy. So, as a single rabbi in South Africa, life isn't so pleasant. But he makes a trip back to New York in 1904, where he reconnects with a childhood friend, Rose Freed, and they get married after a very short one-month courtship. For the next 25 years, they'd be a very happy couple until Rose sadly dies at the age of 49 in 1929. Um, They would have six children, three boys and three girls. At the end of the lecture, we'll discuss what happens to the children. They didn't get nachas from all of them, let's put it that way. Um, hmm? Uh, Some of them, yes. One of them in particular. Not like the, some of the other figures, like Mendelssohn, who had no nachas whatsoever. Hertz, no, had uh, reputable offspring, but there were certain instances which were not so pleasant. Okay. Um, in 1911, Hertz decides that it's time to move on from South Africa. His career is not advancing. He is not uh, succeeding in unifying the community. He needs to go somewhere else. But they pay him so well. In 1911, Hertz is now uh, 39 years old. He had been there for 13, uh, 13 years. They paid him very, extremely well. So he's reluctant to leave. But, gotta get out. Sometimes rabbis become dissatisfied. It's time to move on to bigger and better things. So he applies for the job at Orachaim on 95th Street, Lexington Avenue. Back to New York. Why? New York is the center of the action, not South Africa. Moreover, moreover, in New York, in Orachaim at least, the rule was, and I don't think it's the rule today, I have to ask Rabbi Schmidman, but uh, you had to be a Shomer Shabbos and pledge and like, sign an agreement that you were Shomer Shabbos in order to be a member of the shul. A, a bunch of shuls had, had that policy. Where you had to be. Uh, but they weren't members, yeah. Right. So, how did they define Shomashabas? Well, I guess it was self defining, but if you got caught doing something you shouldn't, then uh, you were bounced out. Uh, well, okay. So. No. Uh-huh. What was that? That may have been the logical... No, I I think the main consideration was just the desire to have religious homogeneity. But in any event, so Hertz goes to Orochayim, and he's happy about being in the uh, surrounding of a religious congregation, as opposed to in South Africa, where they hardly ever went to shul. They were only going to shul at at best on on the high holidays, and the shuls were empty on Shabbos. He liked the idea of regular community of religious observers. But he never really was the rabbi of Orochayim. Why? Because although he got the job in December of 1911, and he was installed in February of 1912, already by January of 1912, he was angling for the position of chief rabbi of the, of, uh, the United Synagogue of the British Empire. Why? Because Herman Adler, who had held the office for the previous 30 years and died in 1911, left a, a big hole to fill. Now, the office of the chief rabbi in England had gone father to son on several occasions, and Herman Adler was the son of Nathan Marcus Adler, but there was no successor in sight. There was going to be a free and open election, and Hertz was a reasonable candidate with a doctorate, with a legitimate smicha, 
now of reasonable age. He's not a youngster, not a youngster anymore. He had served the congregation admirably in a, in a British Empire. So he's a good choice. Who is he competing against? Well, one of his uh, com- uh, the competitors to the, for the job, another candidate, was Bernard Drachman. Bernard Drachman was one of Hertz's teachers at JTS and was also the rabbi at Congregation Zichman Ephraim, also known as today Parkey Synagogue. So I occupied the pulpit where Bernard Drachman was, which leads me to a complete aside because the rabbis are supposed to be funny. And, and, and I'm going to tell you two jokes that Hertz said and you'll laugh. I'll just tell you another joke totally because I'm mentioning Drachman. Drachman is buried next to Harry Houdini. Why? Because Harry Houdini's parents were members of Zichron Ephraim. And one, night, one time at a Friday night dinner, Rabbi Schneier mentioned that Houdini is buried next to Drachman and that he himself has a plot next to Drachman. And, and Rabbi, Rabbi Schneier said, that's one box I want to see him get out of. <laughs> so, it's a good joke. Um, now, Drachman was a bad candidate because, number one, he didn't have a powerful voice. He didn't have great... He was not a great orator. He was uh, just a, a, a good company man, a good American Jewish leader at best. He wasn't going to be for the British Empire. The other candidate was Moses Hyamson. Moses Hyamson was a good choice and, and about eight years older than Hertz and had a background in England. But he didn't get the job. Having failed to get the job, he took the job at Orachim. He took Hertz's job. <laughs> and went on to become the professor of codes of Shulchan Aruch at JTS for the next 25 years until 1940. Okay. So, Hertz wins the job, and he moves to England in 1913. Um, what is his responsibility? Yeah. So, in this whole conversation so far, there's no mention of any Eastern European opportunity, or even in Germany. Uh-huh. He's like beyond the world that he's been inspired to. Well, Hertz is not interested in going to the old world. Hertz is an English language preacher who speaks a, a nice fluent Yiddish, which will help him with the, with, the, with the Eastern European immigrants in London. That will be very, very important in his career in helping consolidate the power of the United Synagogue to include not only the old line British Jews, but also the newcomers. But Hertz is not interested in going back to the old world. He has uh, ideas about glory in, 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 a, in an Anglo-Jewish environment. Is there a question on this? Weren't there any British rabbis? Who no. Okay, so let me... I, I, I took for granted that people would understand this, but let me clarify. There are almost no British rabbis for the simple reason that Nathan Marcus Adler and Herman Adler adopted a policy that Jews' college would not ordain rabbis. It would ordain ministers and that nobody could use the title rabbi except for the chief rabbi. Now, that's not to say there were no other people with smicha. There were a handful who might have immigrated and every now and then there was a stray uh, fellow at Jews' college who, who received smicha from some private source. But basically, the ministers of Jewish congregations of Orthodox synagogues were ministers and not rabbis. Reverend. Reverend. It means you learned a little Chumash and Rashi and maybe some Gemara and some Mishnayis and, and you learned a little Shulchan Aruch, but you didn't, you, you didn't get... Stad uh, Yoriora. You're asking yeah. What Shilas? Who's asking Shilas? Right, the, answer, the, the, answer the, the answer is the London Basedin took, took care of the very serious matters. And the London Basedin at a time was a very serious Basedin in the 18th century under Tevel Shif and at times under Solomon Herschel and 
then it kind of had relaxed standards in the latter part of the 19th century, early 20th century, which is why when Hertz came on the scene, the London Beisden was not taken so seriously, and he would have to appoint Eastern European, you know, Haredim to, to the Beisden to, to increase its reputation. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't have smicha. Right. It didn't make much of a difference, but we, there was a shochet uh-huh. from Europe. Yeah. And he said that's the only man in the community that has smicha. Uh huh. All he did was kill chickens. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Where was this? But the whole of the British Empire. In fact, I don't know of any rabbi that ever went in the British Commonwealth to any of the satellite countries. That were not reverends. They weren't called rabbi. They were called rabbi. Uh-huh. They were called rabbi. Uh-huh. Who was the so-called yeah. rabbi of other shuls around? Just one guy came ministers? from the place. So, uh, so minister, there, was a, there was a union of ministers who were graduates of Jews College who functioned at the local synagogue level with the chief rabbi just being a figurehead who, hung, who made pastoral visits to various synagogues but otherwise was based out of London. This is true today, too. No, today it's very different because after the war you had Haredi yeshivas that were established in England and you have large communities that are not under the auspices of the United Synagogue. We'll get to, even in Hertz's time, there are unions of synagogues that are not under his auspices with which he'll have to contend. So let's get to that right now. No. Gateshead was established in the 30s for that very purpose. Yeah. The chief rabbi of Israel, yeah. I'm not sure when he moved to England. I believe it was in the 30s. Uh, what was that? Herzog came out of Ireland. Yeah. So, but so some people went to, went back to Eastern Europe for their education, so that they should be legitimate, bona fide rabbis. And those people either functioned within the United Synagogue or outside the, 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 or the orbit of the United Synagogue. Let's just keep going, because when when Hertz gets there, he has to deal with people who are not in his group, officially not in his group. They're not uh, members of the United Synagogue congregations, whether to the left or to the right. So who's to the left? To the moderate left, you have reform. What is reform? It's like uh, traditional conservative Judaism, basically. The kind that doesn't really exist anymore. And to the left of that was the liberal synagogue. The liberal Judaism, which was founded by Claude Montefiore and under the auspices of Rabbi Israel Maddock, an American-born graduate of HUC, was very, very far. All the way over, they fell over. Like the, the Shabbos on Sunday kind of crowd. Uh, this was to the extreme. Reform was quite moderate, and the, dis- the differences between a United Synagogue uh, house of worship and a Reform house of worship was not always so obvious. And sometimes ministers who functioned in the United Synagogue, if they became a little bit too progressive and the chief rabbi had to call them out on it, they could say, oh, forget it, I'll just move into the Reform ca- camp, because the differences were negligible. Okay, to the right, there was the Federation of Synagogues, which were basically the, Euro- the, the Eastern European immigrant congregations, which were more than just stiebels, but uh, they were not socially and culturally on the high level, the elite level of the United Synagogue. And the, ch- and the chief rabbi was not their chief rabbi, although the relations were usually pretty cordial. Then in the 1920s, you have the Union of Orthodox Hebrew Congregations, the Adath, which was led by Rabbi Victor Schoenfeld, 
who died relatively young at, in 1930 at the age of 50, and he was succeeded by his son, Rabbi Dr. Solomon Schoenfeld, who became Hertz's son-in-law. So the competitor becomes Mishpacha, and actually the right-hand man of Hertz in the later years of his life. Okay. I don't know. No, no relative. No relative. I tell you, I just telling him. Yeah. I just from I'm just telling. I know no relative, but Solomon Schoenfeld yeah. saved Rabbi Fabian Schoenfeld's life. Got him out of yeah. Right. So, so Solomon Schoenfeld. No, no just to jump ahead a little bit, Solomon Schoenfeld during the the era of the Nazis was the executive director of the Chief Rabbi's Religious Emergency Council. And in that capacity, he was basically the most important British Jew in arranging for the saving of uh, people from the Holocaust. And unlike, let's say, the, li- the, the likes of Peter Bergson, Hillel Cook, who did a lot of propaganda, uh, Rabbi Dr. Schoenfeld actually saved real people's lives. And he saved Rabbi Schoenfeld's wife. Yeah. And I have to tell you something, this is word to word. This is yeah. he, he expresses to me. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's really amazing. Well, because Schoenfeld knew how to get to to, to government officials, how to extract money from people uh, who were reluctant to give, and all this under the auspices of the chief rabbi, despite the fact that he is the head of a competitor synagogue union, but but also the son-in-law of uh, the chief rabbi. So sometimes you have unusual uh, combinations. All right. During the 33 years that Hertz was the chief rabbi, his main adversary was Sir Robert Whaley Cohen, a name you never heard of, right? Robert Whaley Cohen. So Bob, Bob Whaley Cohen was, from 1913 to 1918, the treasurer of the United Synagogue, and from 1918 to 1942, the vice president of the United Synagogue, and from 1942 to 1952, the president of the United Synagogue. For 40 years, he ran that organization. And even when he wasn't president, he was basically president, because one of the Rothschilds, who was an absentee, didn't really care what was going on, just had his name on the, on, on the envelope, was out of the picture. So Cohen ran the, the show. But the United Synagogue is an orthodox union. And yet, Whaley Cohen wasn't observant. And not only was he not observant, he was in many ways anti-observance and wanted to do whatever he possibly could to take official orthodoxy in, in Great Britain and align it with reform. Now, how can a chief rabbi function when the, when the leading lay officer is looking to undermine you religiously at every turn? Not an easy relationship. And so he and Hertz had a falling out many times over, over a variety of issues, and they were both very combative personalities. It is said about Rabbi Hertz that uh, he always used peaceful means when all other, else, when all other methods failed. <laughs> so... Uh, he was not afraid to take on the wealthy and the powerful. But this was out of character for the chief rabbinate, because in the days of Herman Adler, who was very, very soft in his orthodoxy, to put it mildly, both in terms of observance and theology, Adler was willing to let the cousinhood do whatever they wanted. Now, what is the cousinhood? The cousinhood were the five or six families that ran British Jewry, that had been around since the days of, uh, of Oliver Cromwell, practically, and had run the, uh, the, the Board of Deputies and all the, the governing bodies of British Jewry since the year Gimel. And they were all related, and they all married each other, they were all very, very wealthy, but by the late 1800s, early 1900s, none of them were especially religious anymore. And so they ran the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, 
synagogue union of official orthodoxy despite not being personally observant. And Herman Adler didn't call them out on it. He said, all right, that's just the way things are. We'll, we'll leave it be. You know? Hertz said, this is hypocrisy of the highest order. And so he went on an attack against those who held positions in official orthodoxy who were themselves not observant. Do you know any of these names? Any of these famous names? Uh, Montague, Cohen, Montefiore. There uh, is a Levy. There is a Levy. <laughs> there is a Levy. Levy, yeah. Okay, so that's Hertz's approach. He doesn't like the hypocrisy of people adopting one method in their personal life and then holding official position in a union that is supposed to represent you know, a, a theologically other position. Okay, so what are some of the machloksim that they have? Just to give you a few examples. Um, one, related to whether a convert has to submit to bris milah. At one point... Whaley Cohen said, oh, a guy converted to Judaism but didn't have a bris milah, he can still nonetheless be a member of the synagogue. And Hertz said, absolutely not. This is a time-honored tradition, it's the halacha, it's the din. They use the word din. Dalad yud nun, din. In Eastern European Orthodoxy, you ever hear the word din? Never, halacha, halacha. In Western European Orthodoxy and British Orthodoxy, it's always the din, the din. They're obsessing over the din. Is it against the din? And this was clearly against the din. Law, the law. Correct, correct. Just like the Torah is the law. The law of Moses. So that was one example of a fight where Hertz said, you're more concerned about dues payments than you are about basic issues of who is a Jew. Another example, Hertz was away for a year. He went on a pastoral tour of all the Commonwealth uh, nations, the Commonwealth states. In 1920-1921, he went to Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Canada, and uh, it was a very important tour. It, ex- it uh, increased his profile and raised the prestige of the office of the chief rabbi. It was a very big success. And it wasn't like he was just having a year-long vacation. He worked hard in an era of not-so-convenient travel. So, while he was away... Robert Whaley Cohen decided, oh, we're going to create an, a Jewish academy in which all the various denominations are going to ordain rabbis under one uh, auspices. Kind of like the various efforts to align JTS with YU in the 1920s and 1940s that never amounted to anything. So he wanted an academy which would t- take the Orthodox Jews College and subsume it under some amorphous transdenominational uh, institution. And Hertz said, what, are you kidding me? This is not going to happen. And he would fire and brimstone against them. Didn't happen. Other examples. Um, when the refugees came in considerable numbers in the late 30s, there was real concern about the religious observance of those who came from Central and Eastern Europe who wanted to maintain their level of piety. You know, it's one thing if you weren't religious to begin with, you don't need to be served kosher food when you get to the, to the British internment camps. But if you were a pietist from, you know, Slovakia, from, the, from the, uh, Galicia, or wherever, Hungary, Poland, and you want to maintain your frumkite, so the chief rabbi is interested in facilitating that. And Robert Whaley Cohn said, no, no, this is a wartime, we can't waste resources, no kosher meat, no matzah and pesach for these people, just let them eat whatever we have. So he, here you have a, a very secular approach uh, conflicting with a traditional chief rabbi. It was the din versus spiritualist Judaism that Whaley Cohen believed what mattered was morality, not the, uh, the letter of the Mosaic law. Okay. 
Um, one of the famous areas that Hertz got involved in was calendar reform. What is calendar reform? So not one day yontif. We're talking about secular calendar reform. There was a desire on the part of Eastman Kodak and certain big companies to have uh, a more logical or coherent approach towards the counting of time. So one option was a 10-day week. That, was the, that goes back to the French Revolution. The, fr- the French Revolution favored that. So this was actually not a 10-day week, but uh, one of the many uh, proposals that was uh, advanced towards the, uh, the finish line was a seven-day week, but a 364-day year with day 365 or 366 in the leap year being a blank day without a, an, a, a, it being a day of the week. Now, that means that if you're counting Shabbos every seven days, then every year it becomes a day later, or every leap year two days later. So Shabbos ends up being on Thursday or Tuesday or whenever. And it's a disaster for traditional believers, whether a traditional Jew or even a traditional Christian who wants to observe the old uh, you know, Sunday Sabbath. So it was, a, it was an odd time to suggest calendar reform, because to be honest, the Julian calendar, which had been slowly uh, done away with since the advent of the Gregorian calendar in the 1500s, the Gregorian calendar was finally adopted everywhere in 1922. The last holdouts were Russia adopted it in 1918 after the fall of the Tsar. So the October Revolution was really the November Revolution. And, and Greece was the last country, I think, in 1922. So now 1923 had this idea for a whole new, wholly new calendar that is going to be more scientifically oriented and not based upon you know, the, the superstitions and religions of the past. But this calendar was only in England? Or no, it was, gonna be, it, it, was, it was advanced by the League of Nations and was t- supposed to be universal. So, so the, our, the benefit certainly isn't to the Jews. The benefit was to, to uh, industry. Industry, corporate, corporations would have benefited from it somehow. Uh, maybe, maybe, who knows? So for, so for eight years, for eight years, Hertz led the charge, uh, not just a, a, a Jewish protest, but a cross-denominational protest, including the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and even the Catholics got involved. So it would mess up their holidays too, and in 1931 in October, there was a big gathering in Geneva, and it was the battle for the Sabbath. And ultimately, Hertz's oratory won the day, and, the, and they tabled the issue, to be reconvened in 1937, at which point they, they, they killed off the issue. And there never was calendar reform. So Chief Rabbi Hertz saved Shabbos for humanity. Wow. All right. Not that I'm aware of. Maybe there was, but it never had the... Uh, the urgency was not like it was in 1931, where something almost really happened. Okay. What I don't understand is, according to the Julian calendar, yeah. Christmas is December 25th. Yeah. Then there was an 11-day difference, because we know that, or at least I know, that Washington's birthday is right, right, right. 11 days different. Uh-huh. So that means the Christmas that is being celebrated today is really the wrong date. I think Christmas was January 6th. Oh, they did that from January. Uh, I'm not. I don't. I'm not. I don't. I don't remember. No, no, no. That was when the, uh, the Magi ended up uh, arriving at. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not sure what what they did with Christmas. Huh? They don't. They don't. So now, a few other issues before we get to the Chumash. The Chumash is the key part. Um, how did Hertz? 
uh, increase the um, the relevance of Judaism in the eyes of the marginal or the nominal British Jew. He, he's how, how big was the community there, and how what percentage okay. of it was what? All right, that's a very good. It's a very good question. The answer is uh, over ninety percent was Orthodox. Wow. Now, how much was Shomer Shabbos? Less than ten percent, but over ninety percent was Orthodox. Because the Reform and the Liberal had very, very small followings. Very small. Uh, they, they had elite people, prominent people, but it was a small, small group. So most are under either the United Synagogue, the Federation of Synagogues, or the Union of Orthodox Hebrew Congregations. That doesn't mean they're religious at all. It just means that they affiliate in an Orthodox way. So Hertz wants to increase Jewish it's education. It's big, small, medium, not the people. Number of people. So... In, I, I think before the, the big influx in the 1880s, the numbers were only about 50,000, 60,000, but later, but later it, it, it grew to over 350,000, almost 400,000. Um, yeah. Well, that's before 1654. Well, it was a small number until the, the big influx after the pogroms of the 1880s. Um, it, it, it got to about 350,000, 400,000. That was where it, it peaked in that era. Um, Hertz wants to increase Jewish education, but there isn't all that much interest in it. That's the problem. Um, you need schools, but, and, and the urgency of it was that the, there is no secular public school system. If you go to school, it's going to have a, a significant Christian flavor to it unless you go to a particularly Jewish school. But even the Jewish schools offered a paltry amount of Judaic studies. They were more interested in advancing themselves in terms of secular education so they can go to Oxford or Cambridge. People were simply not interested in Torah study and hurts that bothered him terribly to his dying day. That would change after his death uh, under, significantly under, under his son-in-law Schoenfeld and under the, the stewardship of Chief Rabbi Brody and later Jacobowitz where there was an improvement in the day schools and in the yeshivas. But in his lifetime, much to his chagrin, there wasn't a lot of Torah study. Um, he wanted people to come back to the synagogue as a spiritual institution during the, the slump. What is the slump? The depression. The depression in England is called the slump. Uh, and also during the war, when it is known that Jews are being massacred on the continent. So he thought that the, the sadness of economic uh, you know, deprivation and knowing that your brethren are dying on the, on the continent would bring people back to religion. But did it? Eh, not really. Uh, it would have been a good reason to come back to religion, but yet it was something of a bit of a failure. Um, okay. He brings Dayan... Rabbi Yecheskel Abramsky to the Beisdin in 1934. Rabbi Abramsky would go on to become a Rosh Hashiva in Eretz Yisrael after he retired from the Beisdin, died in 1976 at the age of 90 and had a massive funeral in Eretz Yisrael. He was one of the gedolim of the 20th century. Eastern European. Where did he come from? He comes from Grodno, I think. From Grodno. And... Okay. So the answer is, there was a need for a very, very uh, orthodox member of the Beisdin so that the world over, the London Beisdin, would be considered reputable. If it only had you know, clerical collar-wearing Anglo ministers on it, 
then its decisions are of no value to uh, someone who is uh, uh, centrist, orthodox, or further to the right. I think that last part should be clarified. Yeah. And you just passed through clerical power. People should know that the rabbis, up until not that long ago, wore Right, in, including people who were orthodox. Yeah. Okay. So some people accused some people accused Hertz of of kowtowing to the ultra orthodox. That whereas he was a moderate figure, and how moderate we'll see soon enough. We discuss his chumash. They say that he was caving into the pressures of the right. That was the accusation that was emanating from the left, from the left within the United Synagogue and from further to the left. But it wasn't really true. Hertz would go against uh, Rav Abramsky and the Beisdin on rare occasion when he felt it was necessary, uh, when he felt that Jewish patriotism to the, to, the, to, the, to the British crown and to the state required uh, concessions or accommodations that the Gedolim wouldn't find appropriate. So there were times that he was willing to go against the Beisden, and other times he went with the Beisden against the more progressive elements. Could he overrule the Beisden as the chief rabbi? No, no. He could overrule on, on certain issues, but not on purely halachic issues. So he was carrying his political weight when he... Uh, from yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that I'm aware of. It seems they had a cordial relationship the whole time. Okay, so Rav Cook. Yeah, so Rav Hillman was the dine on the Beisden before Rav Abramsky. He retired in 1934. Yes, he retired. So Rav Hillman was the father-in-law of Rav Herzog. And he moved there. Hillman, Rav Hillman was the father-in-law of Chief Rabbi Herzog of Eretz Yisrael later. And he moved to Eretz Yisrael, retired in 34. Rav Abramsky came on, retired in 51. And then they also brought in Diane Grunfeld at one point in the late 30s. So there were heavy hitters on this Beisden at all times. It was never as though Joseph Hertz was the leading halachist on the Beisden. He wasn't the halachist by any stretch. He was simply a rabbi who held the title of Chief Rabbi. Not that his credentials in the Talmudic sphere were... All that impressive. He, to be an impressive he was a very impressive leader. Okay. Now, well, uh, yeah. Again, Rav Cook. Rav, Co- okay, Rav Cook was in England during World War uh, One, and they uh, spent a good a good amount of time together. Their relationship was was cordial. And then uh, Hertz went to Eretz Yisrael multiple times after Rav Cook became chief rabbi of Palestine. Mm-hmm. He went in 1920. Um, at the beginning of the year of the British Mandate, while on his tour of the world, and then he went again in 1925 at the famous uh, opening of Hebrew University, where they both spoke, uh, except that Hertz's speech is kind of forgotten, whereas Rav Cook's speech is, is criticized viciously by the ultra-Orthodox for you know, being too moderate, the, and the fact that he was even there at all. Hertz didn't say anything of, 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 of great worth. I mean, he was, he was there. He was the chief rabbi of the British Empire, so he was there. Since Hertz was more politically oriented, yes. did he have any control of the British government in reference to the policy with Palestine? Oh, okay, so now we get to the issue of Hertz's Zionism. Hertz was an avowed Zionist. 
which got him into a lot of trouble with the old cousinhood and the, and the, the old stalwarts of British Jewry who were very, very anti-Zionist. Not just non-Zionist, they were anti-Zionist. Because in emancipated countries where Jews had full rights, for them to suggest that we are nationals of some uh, trans-state uh, entity, like the world Jewish people, it means we're not really British subjects. So strong anti-Zionist current exists at the top of British Jewry. Hertz was an avowed Zionist. He was very, very pleased with the Balfour Declaration, and he did whatever he could to maintain British um, allegiance to the fulfillment of the Balfour Declaration. Of course, that fizzled out over time. It became clear that the British were not really interested in fulfilling the, 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 the mandate as it had been allotted to them to pursue a Jewish national homeland. But Hertz's Zionism had one very, very important caveat, and that is Zionism does not override pikuach nefesh, that during the Shoah years, saving of lives is more important than the Zionist agenda, which means that, a, that an 80-year-old widow from Eastern Europe is just as important as a 19-year-old potential chalutz. And that a Haredi yeshiva boy is just as valuable as someone who knows how to hold a gun. That each life is equally valuable, and if you can save people through a particular scheme of approaching whatever government official or bribing whatever official, and a life is within grasp, you don't give it up just because it becomes inconvenient for the Zionists or because the destination of that refugee is not Palestine. Among the very Fabrenta Zionists, if the destination wasn't Palestine, forget about it. Let him die. And, and Chaim Weitzman was quoted as saying, and he didn't really mean it in such a nasty way, but he was quoted as saying that only a third of, the, of European Jewry will survive the war, and they'll go to Eretz Israel and build up a new nation, whereas the others are dust of the earth. They're, they're destined for, uh, you know, for doom. He didn't mean it in the sense that I'll sacrifice them for the sake of, er of Medinat Yisrael. He was just predicting what was going to happen. But that sentiment, in a more uh, malicious way, really was the sentiment of some Zionists. And Hertz thought that was absolutely morally wrong. You save lives if you can, it doesn't matter what kind of life they are. Okay. What was, uh, in the limited time we have left, let's just talk about his children. He had six kids. Um, three sons, Leon Daniel, and Samuel, D Leon, Daniel, and Samuel, three daughters, Judith, Ruth, and Josephine. Leon married Irene. Irene was the daughter of German refugees, and they moved to, to, uh, to Palestine. They made, they made their home in Haifa, and the, that sounds nice and wonderful, except that it wasn't a good shidduch in the beginning, because the Germans looked down upon... Uh, on Leon as, oh, the son of, a, of the chief rabbi is like a nothing. Now, you might think the chief rabbi is a very prestigious thing, but bear in mind that, that Joseph Hertz was a Slovakian Jew who then moved to America, and America is like, you know, passe by the Europeans, and, and he was middle class or lower middle class at that. He wasn't a rich man personally, so he wasn't upper caste. He was a chief rabbi, that's very nice, but he's not rich and he doesn't have... Uh, the yichus, so to speak, by European standards. So the Germans didn't like the, the son-in-law. And the chief rabbi wasn't so happy that Irene ate treif. And when they got married and they made their home in, in Eretz Israel, it wasn't a kosher home. 
So that goes to show you that this, the, the son, the, the firstborn son of the chief rabbi, didn't mind eating a tra- having a trafe house. Goes to show you that the level of religiosity that he was brought up with was not something that was firm and inculcated and and uh, really part of his life. Um, now this was a problem because when Hertz wanted to visit his son and daughter-in-law in Israel, he can't eat there. So the deal was. She gets a month's notice to turn the house over and make it kosher. And in 1940, he went to visit them after the war started. But, but what? So he so he sent a telegram saying, "You're hereby forewarned." Signed, Father. And and they had a month to make the house kosher. <laughs> How many kosher restaurants were in Haifa in 1940? All right. Now the next son, the next son Daniel was the most brilliant of them all, and he was a physician. A young doctor in the royal court, 26 years old, committed suicide. Why? He had very high standards for himself, and he just he couldn't live up to his own standards, and he, and he, t- he overdosed on, uh, on drugs. Um, this was a big question, because the Bayesden had to decide whether or not he should be buried in a cemetery. And so the Bayesden issued a ruling that he was not of sound mind when he took the, the drugs, therefore he could be buried appropriately in the cemetery. Um, the oldest daughter, Judith, she married Solomon Schoenfeld. Now, Solomon Schoenfeld was the head of the Adath, the, of the Union of Orthodox Hebrew Congregations, the son of Victor Schoenfeld, who was Hertz's main uh, competitor in, in, in the traditional sphere of Jew- British Jewry. So they were direct competitors. But Solomon Schoenfeld was Hertz's right-hand man when it came to rescue efforts. And so his daughter was working in the office late hours, and Rabbi Solomon was a young and unmarried rabbi and a very handsome man at that, six foot two with blonde hair and blue eyes, and so the, he asked her to marry him. And she said yes, and they were married for 40 years. Um, so it was a nice, happy marriage. They got, they got nachas from that. Ruth, the, the next daughter, was a GI bride. She, she, she fell in love with an American Jewish serviceman in 1945 and left for America. Um, and the youngest daughter, Josephine, never married. Now, the fact that she never married was sad, but there was a reason she never married. Her mother died when she was pretty young. Rose Hertz died in 1929, and the chief rabbi never remarried. It was unusual for a prominent rabbi to be widowed relatively early in life and not remarry, but he, he, didn't, well, he wasn't interested. And so his uh, companion for the rest of his life was his daughter. She took care of the home, and she was like a stand-in for the Rebetzin. So she sacrificed having her own family to basically support her father in his older years. Okay. Now, what about the Chumash? What about the third son? The third son. Uh, Samuel, he was a regular... Nice guy. Nice guy. Nice guy. Nothing special. <laughs> Nothing special. <laughs> Nice guy. He ate kosher. He he stayed from actually. He he stayed religious. So, the Hertz Chumash. What happened to the Hertz Chumash? In 1929, Hertz begins publishing the Chumash. He finishes in 1936, and they came out as five separate volumes, published by Sonsino, and then one volume published in 1937. Um. This Chumash was not written in its entirety uh, as a first draft by Hertz. He had collaborators 
who, like you know, Mendelssohn's Bible, wrote various sections. But Hertz was the final editor and is credited as effectively being the author of the whole thing. And he did rework most of the of the footnotes, and he personally wrote all of the essays at the end of each of the of the five books, which are the, is in my mind the most interesting part of the whole volume: the essays in between the books. And it t- and it tells us what his intentions were in writing this chumash. Now, his what he faced was the lack of a synagogue Hebrew-English Bible that satisfied early 20th century educated British Jewry. These are people who are very educated, very literate, don't know much Hebrew, but they're going to synagogue and they would like to learn more and understand more, but it must be presented to them in a way that is not overly, um, I don't want to use the word orthodox, but, but uh, overly midrashic and homiletic. It has to appeal to their sense of history and reality. Were they using the King James? Is that what they were using? No, they were using just uh, Hebrew language chumash. Uh, there was no, there wasn't a good English language one available. I mean, there was the Isaac Leeser Bible in America, but there wasn't a good British English Bible that was that was spe- specifically Jewish. Okay. And, and how much Hebrew did they understand? Dep- it depends upon the Karagant. Was it a Yiddish translated Well, there's Yehoash, which is the whole Tanakh, and there's the base Yehuda, but I don't think people were bringing that to shul with them. Uh, th- that was sitting on the on the shelf at home, never being touched. Okay, so let's 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 take a look at some of the essays that separate the various volumes, and it tells us a whole lot about Hertz's theology and his his goals with this chumash. One of the essays in Beratius was the Jewish attitude towards evolution, and suffice it to say, he is not a, a pure Darwinian, but nor is he about to reject evolution in its entirety. He's taking a sort of a comfortable middle ground that uh, allows for real science, but also takes seriously the notion of creation ex nihilo. Not necessarily Adam and Eve being real people, but creation ex nihilo with uh, the advance of science. One of the great, great quotations is, slowly and by degree, science is being brought to recognize in the universe... Uh, in the uh, the existence of one power, meaning that even the people who are approaching things not from a theological perspective, but are in the university, the, the real scientists are coming around to believing in one God. God I don't think so. Okay, now is that true? No, no but he says it's true. That's what matters. Rabbi Hertz says it's true. Okay, next thing. The deluge and its Babylonian parallel. Now, whoa. In, in an Orthodox Bible, let's say the Stone Art Scroll Chumash over there, would you ever find something called the, the, the deluge in the Babylonian parallel? Rabbi Zlatowicz and Rabbi Sherman don't know about a Babylonian parallel. Okay? That's not what they're interested in. So why is Hertz writing about it? Because the readers know all about it. They went to Oxford. And you can't bamboozle them with Beratius Rabbah being the plain reading of the text. It isn't. So he has to address matters of faith that are on the mind of the educated British Jew. Another one. Are there two conflicting accounts of the deluge and creation? Now, those who are familiar with a little bit of Bible criticism, documentary hypothesis, J-E-P-D, are familiar with the fact that Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 appear to be contradictory. And also, that in the Parshish Noah, you have snippets 
interspersed all throughout the Pasha of seemingly two different versions of the story. How many animals were there? Were there seven pairs or were there two pairs? So he asks, it's a very important question, are there two different accounts? And what's his answer? Absolutely not. There's one account. Because Hertz believes in mosaic authorship of the whole, of the whole Torah. This is his... Uh, the, the, the bread and butter of his doctrinal orthodoxy is mosaic authorship of the whole Torah, without exception. Okay, another example. Israel in Egypt, the historical problems. So those who are familiar with a little bit of Bible criticism know that there's a big question about whether the Exodus was a historical event. You know, Rabbi David Wolpe got up in front of Sinai congregation in, in, in Los Angeles like 10 years ago on Pesach morning and said there never was an Exodus. Shmendrick, why does he have to say it on Pesach? I mean, it's one thing if you believe it, but on Pesach, come on. So... But Hertz has to, has to address this because he has educated people who are wondering, you know, the, the Egyptologists are not necessarily agreeing with the Bible. What's the truth? Another example. Israel and Egypt. Absolutely. That it happened in the year 1215 under Ramses II. So he gives you, he relies upon um, Professor Kitchen, who was one of the leading Egyptologists, who, be, who wrote a very important work on the reliability of the Old Testament. That, that the Old Testament is not just a bunch of fab- fables and fairy tales, but that its, its minor details are effectively reliable. Okay, now he's a Christian scholar, but for Hertz, it doesn't matter where the, where the truth comes from. You take the tr- truth from wherever it comes. But in the late 18th century, and I would think that time also, yeah. archaeologists were trying to fit their studies... Biblical archaeology of, uh, of Albright was trying to fit what they found into the Bible because they were very religious Protestants. Like the same thing. Yes, absolutely. Hertz is to, to, to Judaism what Albright effectively is to, to Protestantism. All right. Now, Israel and Egypt, a spiritual contrast. So he's writing about Sefer Shemos, and this isn't about the historicity of the Bible so much as it is that Israel, ancient Israel really was that great as a moral force and as a a way of advancing the ball of civilization in the moral realm. That the the pagans of the past were a bunch of barbarians and ancient Israel brought light into the world and made it a better place. Another example. Is the Code of Hammurabi the source of Mosaic civil law? People's notice there are there are similarities between Pashas Mishpatim and the Code of Hammurabi. So people are wondering, maybe just Moses borrowed not from you know that he wasn't having divine revelation about civil law, but he's borrowing from neighboring civilizations. And what does Hertz do? Hertz highlights the uh, contrasts between the two. He doesn't deny that there are similarities, but it doesn't interest him. What interests him are the differences and showing how revealed law, like the Mosaic law, is more godly and more kind and fair than the Code of Hammurabi, which is in many ways nasty and vicious. Okay, another example, the plagues. He writes about the plagues. I wrote an essay about this a couple of years ago, maybe some of you read it, where uh, on, on, on Parshas um, Bishalach, actually, in 2013, uh, where the issue is Miracles in the Bible. The issue was Kriyas Yamsuf, but also the plagues, Esher Makath. Hertz is not interested, like the Stone Chumash is, or, or, or the Kaplan Chumash, or the Chabad Chumash, in saying that, uh, like Rabbi Yossi Aglili, that there were Chamishim Makas, or Matayim Chamishim Makas. Why? Because that's taking something that's borderline realistic and making it horribly fantastical and not in the realm of the possible. So he follows the Ibn Ezra approach, but Vayasem Hayam Lacharava, what does Ibn Ezra say? 
kicharava. It wasn't totally dry. It was a little wet. The, the ground was a little wet in the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, why does Ibn Ezra say kicharava, that it was only a little bit dry? To make it more realistic. So Hertz does that too. Don't, it's not 3 million, it's 600,000. Okay. 600,000. Let's not over, overly dramatize it. Okay, so. Now. Next, ne- next, next essay. All right. Let's go to Vayikra. Let's go to Vayikra. The book of Leviticus, antiquity and mosaic authorship. In other words, there were many who said that what was the last piece of the Torah? Leviticus. That there's J-E-D and then P. And that P was post-Babylonian captivity and only snuck into the Torah just before Ezra. So what does Hertz do in a long essay after the book of Ezra? He tries to show that the sacrificial system was around from time immemorial. It's part of the Mosaic Torah. Another one. Do the prophets oppose sacrifices? Now this might sound like a little bit odd. Why is Hertz dealing with this one? But let me explain. It's very important. There are psukim in the Tanakh, in the Nevi'im, especially the Nevi'im Achronim, that seem to criticize the whole notion of sacrificial worship, of the killing, of slaughtering of animals, and pouring their blood on the Mizbeach, as being worthless. Now, what does Hertz say, and what did the, the Nevi'im probably really mean? That sacrificial worship is worthless if it's not accompanied by moral, you know, uh, spiritual, spiritual way of life, contrition. You have to really repent from your evil ways. So, that's what Hertz has to say. Why is it important to him to defend the sacrificial cult, something that's not happening anymore, from the argument that the prophets were against sacrifice? The answer is because the liberal denominations of Judaism would argue that all the, the performative mitzvot are basically in the same category as korbanos nowadays, and all you need is moral virtue, and you're a good Jew. So Hertz defends the korbanos as a way of like vicariously defending really mitzvah observance in general. Okay, another one. Love thy neighbor. How could you argue with love thy neighbor? Answer, the Christians claim that they invented it. And that the Jews don't believe in love thy neighbor. That the Jews are, are very parochial and xenophobic and maybe even misanthropic. And so what does Hertz say? That any Christian notion, any New Testament notion of love thy neighbor is simply borrowed from the existing Judaic notions of love thy neighbor. Okay, another one. Uh, let, me read, let me read you a little passage. We'll go a few minutes over time today. Um, page 671 of the Chumash. My Bar Mitzvah Parsha, Parsha's Balak. This wasn't my Bar Mitzvah speech. No, it wasn't. Um, regarding the, the, uh, Bilaam's donkey. So, Vayiftach Hashem et Piha Aton. God opened the mouth of the donkey. Yeah, I, well. <laughs> All right. So, Hertz goes through various opinions. Did the donkey really speak, or did the donkey not really speak? Was this a dream sequence? Was this live? Various opinions. But then he says the following. In brief, there is not in Judaism any one authoritative interpretation of the book of Bilam. And in regard to its narrative, readers are free to think what they please. Now, that's a citation from Josephus. Therefore, now he writes himself, those who do not deem any of the above interpretations acceptable should feel too deeply the essential veracity of the story to be troubled over much with minute questions about its details. In whatever way we conceive of the narrative, its representation of the strivings of conscience is of permanent human and spiritual value. In other words, it doesn't matter how literally you take the story. And some very hyper-literally and some not at all. 
The main thing is that the story teaches us a valuable lesson, and don't get caught up in the minutia. And that was his approach towards a lot of the uncomfortable aspects of the Torah, where he'd have a hard time explaining to a skeptic that this actually happened. So he's basically telling the reader, don't worry whether it happened. The point is, if you can extract a good lesson, then you've read the Parsha well. So this can apply to Yamsuf, and it can apply to Teva, and everything like that? Okay, so how far does Hertz's pro- progressive attitude towards the Torah go, or to the Tanakh go? Oh, let's, I'll get, in the last essay, that will become, become apparent. Another essay is on Kol Nidre. What does Hertz have to say about Kol Nidre? It's in the Book of Devarim on issues of, of, you know, kitech dalindor, matters of taking vows. Hertz is concerned. What do the Goyim think? What do the, what do the Christians think? That the Jews lie to the, to the Christians, and every year they take this uh, declaration which allows them to deceive whomever they want, because kol nidre is carte blanche to, to be dishonest. So he goes out of his way to say, that's not true, that kol nidre only applies to ben adam lamakom, voluntary things that you take upon yourself that you, it turned out, couldn't fulfill. But, Ben Adam Lachavero, interpersonal matters or commercial matters where there's a counterparty, Kol Nidre simply does not apply. Why does he have to write this? Because not only are the Gentiles of that opinion, but there are Jews who might think that the Gentile criticism of Judaism had validity. Not that Jews really were looking to deceive their friends, their, their Christian neighbors, and using Kol Nidre as an excuse. But the Jews who are not so learned in Judaism might think that the Christians are more aware of the truth than they are. Therefore, you need to have this clarification. Another one. Shema and martyrdom. And he has a long essay on the Shema, and he, quotes, uh, he discusses 1919 to 1921 in the Ukraine. Why does Hertz do this? So every now and then, if you read the Kurtz Kumish cover to cover, every uh, 100 pages or so, there's some reference to a recent event, a recent persecution. He does this because Anglo-Jewry is not suffering under the Nazis, under the Communists. They're not being killed. There's, you know, genteel anti-Semitism, but they're not really suffering. And he doesn't want British, you know, native British Jewry to think that killings are, are a matter of the past. That, you know, in, in Slichus, when we, met, when we mentioned in the Kinos, uh, Bopart and York from the year 1190, that was the last time anything bad happened. He wants the Anglo-Jewry to know that, yes, in, his, in their own lifetimes, Jews were butchered. Now, this is before the Holocaust, before it's an obvious point. He doesn't have to do this by 1945. But in the 1920s and 30s, you could be ignorant of what's going on in Eastern Europe if you were a native British Jew. So it's important to him to, to stress that. Okay, the last po- uh, uh, essay is about authorship of the book of Isaiah. Now, who can figure out where I'm going with this? Two Isaiahs, right. So Isaiah 1, Isaiah 2. So classic biblical scholarship is that Isaiah 1 is Isaiah chapter 1 to 39, and Isaiah 2 is Isaiah chapter 40 through 66. Except there are those who say there's a third Isaiah, there's a treat of Isaiah 51 through 66. But let's assume there are two Isaiahs. If you're reading Art Scroll, do you ever hear about the two Isaiahs? Never. Alright? But Hertz is not afraid. Why? Because it doesn't touch upon dogma. As long as you believe in Mosaic authorship of Bereshis to Le'enei Kol Yisrael and Simchas Torah, you're an Orthodox Jew. And everything else is negotiable. So, let me read for you an exact quotation. Page 942. (laughs) So he says like this. 
this question can be considered dispassionately. It touches no dogma or any religious principle in Judaism, and moreover does not materially affect the understanding of the prophecies or of the human conditions of the Jewish people that they have in view. In other words, you're not an apicorus if you say this, and it doesn't really affect the way we learn the text. The bottom line is the message is still a beautiful message. So that shows you his willingness to accept critical scholarship, but only on things that are after the Pentateuch. So in this regard, he was able to present a Chumash that was usable in Orthodox synagogues, conservative synagogues, in England and America, and most shuls used it for a very lengthy period of time until the stone Chumash came out, or until people got rid of English uh, Chumash altogether and went all Hebrew, because they thought everybody knows everything. Um, that, w- that was his greatest and most lasting contribution. His other was the sitter. But um, the sitter never really took off. In 1946, it was published after his death. He died January of 46. The last uh, galley proof, the last page that he, w- he worked on was page 1046, which was the Shema Yisrael for, for a person who's on their deathbed. So just imagine, the last thing he did was, was the Shema for, for, for deathbed. And it was finished uh, by others. Um, so that, that never took off. Why not? Because there were a lot of other Sidurim that were available. Which one was the one that was popular here in America? The Birnbaum. Birnbaum was good because Birnbaum didn't tinker with the text. He gave you good critical footnotes that today might not be so appropriate in some orthodox environments, but it was perfectly legitimate. And Birnbaum, in his introduction to the sitter, said there shouldn't be an orthodox sitter, a conservative sitter, or a reform sitter. There should just be one sitter. It should be a canonical text like the Bible and the Talmud. Now, he was a pie-in-the-sky dream to think that would ever really hold true, but it's a nice dream, the idea that there's a canonical sitter, at least for Ashkenazic Jewry, and it really was. Other siddurim failed. The Benzion Boxer sitter failed because it, w- it had too many changes that were of a conservative uppercase C nature, and so it wasn't going to take on outside of that movement, and that movement already had the Birnbaum, which was, which was perfectly satisfactory. So Birnbaum and Hertz, for a good half a century, were the staples of American synagogue life. And uh, in my mind, it should have stayed that way. All right, well, now we'll stop. <laughs>